0: Welcome to episode 59 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and on this episode we are taking a trip to Germany but not the entire country. We're headed to the east side where we will revisit the eastern German camera industry. During the years before, during and after World War II, East Germany was home to one of the largest camera producing areas of the world. During the early part of recording this episode, we struggled with a plethora of technical difficulties, so we never got a chance to record a proper intro, but everyone was here. Anthony, Paul, Theo, and Mike, joined by our number one fan, Robert Rodoloni, and first time caller, Mark Gordon. Let's get to it. Are we Are we recording? Oh yeah, we've been recording this oh, whole time. <laughs> this is going to be the most nonsensical episode ever. Good. So what were we, what were we talking about again?
1: Whereas.
2: <sighs>
0: Veras that's
1: right. there is Veras,
0: Vera threes, you know, there of all the brands that we could talk about. Uh, if we were to do for one, it'd be impossible, but if we were to do an episode on all the different Dresden area or East German camera companies, for one, it'd be confusing as hell because so many of them got bought out, merged, combined. I mean, that happened in other countries too, but there's just so damn many of them. Um, we just thought, like, hey, let's let's try. Uh, cover some of the big big hitters in uh, in East Germany, Eastern Germany, and East Germany, because you know the industry existed prior to the war. Dresden was it, for many many years, and, and probably still is today, um, was a, a huge hub for manufacturing. It was a a very good strategic location for Germany to have. A lot of railroads and and manufacturing of all kinds. They had technical institutes. Some of the Germany's brightest engineers and and mechanicals, uh, you know, people that built large big things and tiny tiny little gears for cameras would study universities near there. Um, you know, I I don't know. Th- I've never been there, so I don't know like all the geometry or geography of it. But in um, I think it was February. Forty-five, I think yeah. the, the allies just bombed the sh- ever living shit out of it. I mean, Fire I read. Storm. Yeah. Yeah. They just carpet bombed the entire area. I mean, they, the Americans even admitted afterwards that they went overkill on it. They just kept dropping bomb after bomb after bomb. And just to obliterate it because uh, for one, it was, it was hard to get that deep into Germany earlier in the war, but when they finally did, it was to um, end once and for all, any, any manufacturing that germany had to keep making weapons and such for um they made a lot they made
3: a lot of weapons there they made tanks they made cannons yeah. there, everything but it had not been hit during the war because it was too far away like you said it was right. too far distance finally they had the fuel tanks to get there so the people in dresden thought they were safe they weren't going to get bombed right yeah and they had no no shelters no nothing and the, the british came through at night because the british did their bombing at night and they came through with two or three hundred uh, uh, Lancasters and started everything going. Then the Americans came through in the morning about eight or nine hours later. So the two the two countries just totally obliterated Dresden. Supposedly, uh, what's his name? Goebbels passed the word around that 200,000 people were killed, but that was a lie because that's what Goebbels did for a living. But the actual number killed was around 25,000. Yeah. Which is nothing compared to what,
0: uh, what we did the firebombing in Tokyo killed 100,000, you know. So. Yeah. But I mean, you know, so it it crippled their their war effort, but you know this being a camera, you know, we're we're camera guys, um, it definitely damaged a lot of the um not as many as you'd think though. Like I I was actually surprised in all the studying I did, you know, uh, factories like um KW were able to, to resume operations fairly quickly after the war. Some of them were in Friedel. Which is which is near Friedel I don't know how to pronounce it um which is nearby so a lot of the factories that were kind of on the outskirts of Dresden were um were spared but not all but um you know and then of course the Soviet Union moved in after the war was done they wanted their war reparations and the factory. right we've talked on this show how they uh they acquired Zeiss's um, factory where they produced the the contacts and you know turned that into the Kiev but we thought we'd kind of shelf zeiss and zeiss icon for this show only because that's there's so much to discuss there we could spend multiple episodes talking about zeiss except for the vera for the vera yeah that well and what's interesting i think we mentioned this in a previous show um the the vera although a zeiss creation is not zeiss icon it's just truly carl zeiss jena the that was built where they made lenses they had a bunch of these guys that were there that weren't being utilized the soviet union didn't need camera technicians you know when they moved when they moved production from dresden to ukraine for the kiev um i think they took some of the like head engineers with but mostly used them to train soviet workers so they they did not although they moved the factory and they moved the equipment they did not take most of the technicians so in the in the years after the war when things were kind of up and running in Ukraine, there was a lot of these, these technical guys in Germany that were just sort of sitting around. And uh, I, I don't know the full story behind it, but apparently they just, they decided, Hey, let's make our own camera and let's try something new that didn't look like anything else that ever existed. That's why the Vera is such a unique looking camera. It's got you cock the shutter by rotating a ring around, um, around the shutter. Some of the later models have interchangeable lenses, they have ones with range finders they have ones with meters they even had a prototype SLR they, they were going to try and turn a the, uh, the vera into an SLR but um it it just it never actually got made but uh, anthony you have the one right the original model
1: yeah i have i have the very first version before it had the tessar that has yeah. like a uh, i believe it's a triplet of some sort in it yeah. and you know you cock it with the ring around the, the lens um and then it's at least on the first version that i have i mean i love the camera the camera you know, if you've never held one of these before, they actually look like they could have been made by Apple. You know, they've got yeah. this incredible sleek design. It doesn't, I mean, it looks like a prototype of a camera that wouldn't actually be a camera. The original version had this uh, lens cap that double, doubled as a as a lens hood where it mm-hmm. looked kind of like this cone shape and you unscrew it and unscrew the front disc and then screw it back on. You had the, this, this funky uh, uh, lens hood on it. Um, only thing on, on on mine, and I'm assuming it's because it was the very first version, uh, the film rewind mechanism will actually just skin your thumb as you try to rewind it. It's this uh, sort of like crack, cross-hatched aluminum that you had to put your thumb down and press down and twist it. Um, and I understand that the later models are not nearly as difficult to uh, to rewind, but I always I always load a short roll of like 18 uh, into my Vera because I get so sick and tired of trying to rewind it. Um, but other than the, uh, you know, oh, I can see Theo's holding up a later version and it has a standard re- rewind crank on it. So they, yeah, they, they, the they they definitely learned their lesson on that first model. But, you know, it was kind of like a a, a, a a Volks camera, you know, and that it was like a, a fairly cheaply made camera, but it punched way above its uh, its weight limit, so to speak. And that uh, it actually, even with the uh, triplet, it produces very pleasing results. And it's a fun camera to use. It is. Um, you know, it's it's really got a, it's charming. And, I, and I've always wanted to, to pick up some of the later versions. Like I really want a rangefinder version of it with the Tessar uh one of these days i'll find one
0: i have the um i can't remember which version i have to be honest with you. i think it's called the vera automat and uh, it has both the range finder and the interchangeable lens mod i have a couple different lenses for it and the shutter works the lenses are good the body's in great shape it's not hard to rewind but the one thing that's broke on it is the range finder it's mm. got I think it's called a split field, is what it's called. It doesn't use a beam splitter. So, like the rangefinder patch is actually like an optical piece of glass. And when it goes out, it turns into a black rectangle. So, when you look through the view, find like on, on, on most rangefinders, when the rangefinder fails, you just see right through it or it becomes incredibly faint. But on this one, you have the opposite where it becomes opaque so um it's unusable but um i did shoot a roll in mine and i just scale focused it and like like yours anthony i I agree it produced really really sharp results i mean if you and that makes sense if you consider this is one of the world's only cameras made by a lens factory usually it's the other way around camera makers produce lenses or or lens companies just sell their lenses to camera companies but carl zeiss jena is where pretty much only lenses were made. And then some of these guys just decided to create their own camera. So you have a camera basically designed around a lens system. And even the triplets, like you said, are extraordinarily good.
1: And, and even advancing it with that ring around the lens is surprisingly satisfactory. You know,
0: I agree. And what's kind of weird is the motion I take is when I'm holding it, you know, I have my right index finger operates operation shutter release, my left hand kind of cradles, the focus wheel, but when it's time to cock the shutter, I just kind of move my left thumb and index finger back to grip the ring. And I twist the camera kind of like, I'm um, like partially twisting the body and then twisting the ring. You guys on the call can see me. I'm lifting my elbows, but you're essentially cocking it in one swift motion like this snap, like this snap. It's snap, like looking look like a bird. But if you, if you try that, I don't know if that's how you do it, but you, <laughs> Part of your finger is rotating the lens a little bit, and then the other part is actually rotating the body the opposite direction, and you end up with the full motion. And yeah.
1: that's that's pretty much how I do it as well. Or I'll yeah. just like sort of hold it in front of me and hold the ring around the lens and just sort of quickly snap the camera back and forth. Yeah, because if,
0: if if you only rotate the ring, you almost have to lower it from your eye and then rotate yeah. it. But if it's to your eye without having to lower it much, your your right hand's already holding the body, so you rotate the body counterclockwise and then with the other hand you rotate the ring the other half of the way clockwise and you it equals a full motion so it's kind of weird but that's the appeal of the appeal of the camera is the sleekness of it and you know the top plate of the one you have there's it doesn't even save air on it at all yeah. like there's literally a button and that's it and there's nothing else on that camera
1: and it has the sort of it has the khaki green covering on yep. it too which is
0: in fact the later models the more they added to it in a way, kind of got away from the original appeal because it originally was so sleek and clean. And as they added more features, it's, it's sort of lost a little bit of that.
4: I, th- I think the two was the one where they really hit the pinnacle with that because they it, it, they added enough just to make it, you know, so you're not skinning your fingers trying to rewind it and so on. But they didn't hadn't added all those extra bits to it. Yeah. And I agree, as they progressed, the, they just they just added stuff that sort of made it less sleek.
0: But if you're a collector and you're the kind of person that likes variants, if that's the kind of thing you're into a model that has like 8,000 different versions, the Vera's is an ideal candidate because they, they made a whole that, <laughs> that <laughs> if I think if Vlad Kern wasn't a Soviet collector, he might be a Vera collector because there's a whole <laughs> bunch of them to have.
1: You know, some of the later ones, they, they kind of got kind of like modern sleek, mid-century modern looking like there's one of them that has uh, these, like horizontal stripes. And it looks a little bit like the uh, the Zeiss Icon Voigtlander Vitessa K one thousand.
2: Well, that was um, the last version. That was the Wear-O-Matic. Yeah, and that's the, the, the one the, I have. The difference between the Wear-O-Matic and the Weramatic was the Weramatic, I believe, showed you the uh, the exposure meter in the viewfinder.
0: Oh, then I don't have that one. I, maybe you, I have, the have the a matic That's the mat. yeah. I have the map uh, then. Okay.
2: And then they changed, like you said, they they. <laughs> these optical engineers can't leave well enough alone so they'd make variations of models without changing the actual name you could have different ca- uh, the same camera with some different features
4: interesting um we mentioned Carl's Zeiss jenner because I mean they they did make lenses and before we sort of move off them one you know one of the most iconic lenses uh from from East Germany obviously the the biotar uh the the five I've got the 4.8 centimeter version here, which uh this is the M40 version. Uh and the reason why I bring that up, apart from being the absolutely um yeah, amazing lens to shoot with, and I've, I've adapted it to micro four thirds so it becomes a perfect portrait lens, is yeah. uh you had one of the early cameras from there, is the the Practic Flex, one of the early SLRs. Uh just interesting. I wouldn't exactly say it's something that you really need to go searching for, but it's interesting camera, the PractiFlex, with the the M40 very short lived mount, um, but a lot of fun, a lot of fun to shoot with. Here's a here's a Contax D, which has the Biotar
3: on it, the 5.8 centimeter. Oh yes, yes, yes. that would
4: be the M42 mount.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's M42, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, the Biotar was a heck of a lens. It really was.
2: Mine has the Meritar.
3: Okay. yeah
2: cuz i think i took the uh the biotar off <laughs> and i'm shooting it this one is in the permanent collection so but that biotar i agree that's the uh, that's yeah. a, my all time favorite lens
3: i mean uh, i like it's that lens nice. it's just yeah, a it awesome. a lot just of them came with the came with the carl zeiss Jena tessar f2.8 tessar right a lot of them
0: i have a um if you like biotars this is called an ehagi parvola which has a biotar on it so this is a 127 folding camera that has um, a comp relief shutter with um, a Yena biotar. I Ooh, had no idea they were making
1: it that far back.
0: Yeah. You can even get them for robots. They made biotars for the robot too. Theo, you, you mentioned the Practiflex and Practiflex was made by KW. If, if I wanted to highlight two Eastern Germany, East Germany camera makers, my two favorites would probably be Ehaggy which made the Parvola and then later the Xactas. Uh, but I also love uh, KW for a couple reasons. One, I like the story. There's a great story behind the creators of, of KW, but they made some really fascinating cameras and they actually created the Practiflex. And uh, a fun story, it's really, I guess it's not fun. It's, it's actually sad. KW was originally created by um, two Jewish, I think brothers, but uh, they created a bunch of really, really cool cameras. Like, like they had a TLR, a 127 uh, KW Reflex TLR, which was cool. What, Paul, what was that KW that you said you didn't want to talk about, the really, really thin folding one?
2: The, Pat, the Atui. Yeah, the, the, Tui, Atui. Yeah, the Atui. I love that camera. Yeah. No, I, I think it's the coolest camera. In fact, I've got one in the basement. It's, it's in the eBay store right now, and I think I might take it off and keep it.
3: You should keep it. Yeah. It's just got I, a great I held one of my hands. It's so thin, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah
0: and
2: the design on it, the way it's shaped, is just really cool.
0: I always thought KW was the first. So, Germany was well known for making quality stuff in the early 20th century. But when you look at, I'll just say, 20s and earlier, pretty much all the cameras look the same. And KW, in my opinion, was one of the first companies that tried to deviate from that and come up with new and interesting designs. In the the patent, it's, it's you know if, if you haven't seen it, picture like a six point five by nine folding camera, like you typically see. You fold the door out, the bellows extends, but there's nothing else. Like the body completely collapses into a thin body, maybe what inch, inch and a half at its widest thick um so it's incredibly small and it would fit you know in maybe like a large coat pocket you know and it's sleek and you could open up and it was a fully functional folding camera they made roll film backs for it they made uh plate uh, uh backs for it sheet film backs for it so you know kw had a lot of really really cool cameras anthony don't you have the pilot the kw pilot
1: i have mine on loan from mike novak Okay. Um, Yeah, and it's a fun camera to shoot. You know, another one of these crazy folding TLR kind of
0: cameras. But not only does it do 127, but it's not like a four by four; it's a three by four. Yeah. So it does 127, but rectangular 127. So you actually get sixteen exposures per roll, and they never put sixteen exposure numbers on the backing paper for 127. So the film advance on that camera is rather awkward.
1: Yeah, it has a uh, like a little lever that it's supposed to properly space yeah. uh, the right number of frames. Maybe just because it's a 90-year-old camera, it doesn't exactly hit the mark every
0: time. So I, I, my memory was was off. Um, KW was not founded by two brothers. It was two businessmen named Paul Goof and uh, Ben Othorz. Um Both of them were, were Jewish. They had manufacturing in the Dresden era. Um, they founded the KW in 1919. The patent Atui was their first product. The itui the word Atui in German actually means case in English. So they incorporated, you know, the the small size, like the, its body was was in the name. Um but you know, throughout the 20s, KW made a lot of just innovative, cool, different designs. And they 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 were recognized for it. They actually got really popular and so after world war one german germany's economy was in really really bad shape they just didn't recover uh and part of the the weakness of the german com- economy is how the nazi party actually was able to kind of gain momentum is that like from a financial standpoint they were able to resolve some of the economic problems you know they obviously created others but anyway in 1926 the German government recognized that manufacturing was in was in in poor shape, and the optical industry was struggling. You know, the superiority of the German camera market the previous twenty years was was really really struggling. So, the creation of Zeiss Sy Icon in nineteen twenty six was four of the biggest Dresden area uh, companies, and and they all merged together to Sy create Zeiss Icon. But KW was in that same area. And they did not merge. They had nothing to do with Zeiss Icon because they were one of the ones that was actually doing well. So there was a, a short period of time in like the mid twenties where KW was probably the most successful German camera maker. They were because they were doing stuff that was different from other people. Um, so anyway, so fast forward to the thirties, uh, you know, you get into some of the, the the darker eras. You have a company run by by Jewish men. And uh, they start to realize, um, you know, we kind of need to get out of here. So, the, you know, you had Paul Guth and, and Ben O'Thorsh. Paul Guth apparently left, just left, fled the country and just said, you know, I'm getting out of here, uh, leaving Ben O'Thorsh behind. And um, Ben O'Thorsh had some ties to the United States. So he, he traveled over to the United States and for whatever, somehow wound up near Detroit. And uh, he connected with with a a businessman named charles noble who owned a photo finishing company uh it was basically like a small camera shop you know the story goes is that ben traded his camera factory back in germany for noble's photo finishing store in detroit and uh he took it you know uh noble being an american you know was able to go to to Germany and, and resume operation. And apparently the government didn't seem to have a problem with that. Thor stayed in America. Apparently he was successful there. He moved out to uh, North Hollywood, California and ran his own camera shop up until he died.
2: Studio city camera.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He, he lived to be over a hundred years old.
2: Yeah. He was, he was one of the, he was one of the great LA dealers.
0: Yeah. So uh, from that end of it, you know, you had one of the two guys who created KW, this guy saw the writing on the wall, fled Germany, was able to arrange this trade with Noble, was successful, throughout the rest of his life, you know, one of the biggest camera dealers, like, like Paul said, of, of Los Angeles. Noble, though, you know, ended up running KW and said, hey, they have a lot of these really cool cameras, but, um, you know, we need to make something that nobody has, you know, wh- whereas... KW did a lot of cameras that were different, but at least they were similar to something else. He decided, Hey, let's make a 35 millimeter SLR. Um, you know, the Xacta existed at that time, but uh, you know, the Xacta has unorthodox controls, right? It, it doesn't look anything like what we kind of knew SLRs to look like, you know, in the years to come, but, um, the Practiflex made its debut in 39. So Theo, that that one you have there, do you know there's a whole bunch of different variations of it? Do you know, is yours a pre-war model? Did you ever date it?
4: Uh, Yeah, I did, but I
0: haven't got that in front of me. Sorry. Um, I'll look it up. Does it have, is the shutter release on the front plate of the camera or the top? It's on the front. Yeah. Okay. On the left-hand side. Yeah. Those are a little bit later models. The original ones, the shutter release was on the top. They actually relocated it to the front later. Uh, But you're right, though. It does use the uh, 40 millimeter screw mount. Um, you got to remember at that, by that time, L- lights already had been using M39 for Leicas and the idea to make a large 42 millimeter screw mount, no one had thought of it, but basically, you know, we're, we're trying to go with this story was if you look at that practice it's clearly an older camera, but it doesn't look that fundamentally different from what SLRs would eventually look like by everybody. Right. I mean, you have the rewind knob and the, Typical, there you go. See, he's got the screw mount. You got the rewind knob where it belongs. You have the advanced knob where it belongs. The shutter releases relatively close to where it belongs. Even the ones that had them up front weren't that foreign. Whereas the exact, like it's a left-handed camera. You have the slow speed governor on the right. You have the shutter, the main shutter speed on the left. Uh, the, you know, the exact, the, for as great as it was, was a bizarre camera. But the Practiflex, in my mind, was the first modern SLR. And its design influenced the Practica, which eventually became part of of Pentagon, which we can talk about a little bit later. There was billions of Practicas, and those look fairly fairly you know common too. So you know KW created the Practiflex, but it was really an American businessman running the company that created that design. So in some ways, you could kind of say that the The father of modern ergonomics for SLRs was was come up by an American who was running a German company. But um, the Practiflex was a very simple, rudimentary camera. Um, but it could be made quickly. It was made cheaply, and you know the exact it was extraordinarily expensive. Most common people couldn't afford it. But the Practiflex was at least somewhat affordable. But uh, and then. In, what, 51, 52, Bob, they wanted to make something a little bit more professional. Yeah. And that's when we get to the Practina. So you have... Practina. You have Flex. There's a different camera called the Practi. There's the Praktika, and then the Practina. The Practina has nothing to do with any of those other ones. And Bob's got one that's loaded. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the one you're holding?
3: I've got more than one. I've got one with a 50... 50- Put back on it, whatever. But the thing is, the Practina, in a way, influenced the Nikon F, believe it or not. Okay. The original Nikon F prototypes had this secondary window here, like the Alpha did. Okay. The original Nikon F prototypes had this removable finder, removable back, attachable motors, removable uh, uh, focusing screen. It all came with this first. Nikon didn't get into that until like 57. This is a spring round motor. I've had a couple of them. They're very—they work, but they're very tricky. Uh, getting them to to mount and, and work—they're
0: very difficult to mount. Yeah, really. I mean, it's it's hot. This one I can't. If I screw it all the way in, it doesn't shoot. What? I want to take a break. I'm showing a picture of the yeah. the, the motor the motor drive mount. The lug, the lug. Yeah. It <laughs> looks very similar to the motor drive couplings. That pretty much everybody else used. Everybody else ended up using, right? And yeah. if, and I don't want to get too far into this this wormhole here, but if you were to look at fifty nine, early sixties, Canon had the Canon Flex. Eventually, Minolta came up with the X one in the early seventies. The one feature that Nikon insisted their cameras have was that external coupling for motor drive. I've asked you this question before about there's no real proof of this. But it, it it seems entirely plausible that they were influenced by this camera.
3: Yeah, they were. I'm pretty sure they were.
0: I would yeah, I would be willing to bet that had this camera not had that, either Nikon just wouldn't have done it or they would have found a different way to do it.
3: The thing is, no one could ever figure out why Nikon had this window here and their prototype, prototypes only. They made about three or four prototypes with this window. Then they dropped the idea. But of course, Alpa had it also. But some of the other features were right out of the Practina, with the interchangeable finders, the back that came off, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The motor, from the very beginning, they also had a—they had a 50-foot back. Nikon's back and the, all the all the 250-shot motors that were ever marketed had a 33-foot capacity. Okay, this back holds 50 feet, so it's good for about 400 frames. Then you would hook this motor under the bottom here, or an electrical motor, and you can get 400 frames out of it. Uh, again. That was ahead of its time. Uh, This was a complete system. As a matter of fact, they even had, besides the spring wound motors, they even had an electric motor, which very few exist. And uh, I have some missing parts on it, so I can't get it. I haven't got the charging unit. But they actually made an electric motor for this thing. And again, years ahead of its time. This is the early 50s, 51, 52, 53,
0: something like that. So you probably had to like carry around like a lead acid car battery or oh, something. Yeah, it, was, it. it would have been a
3: big battery in those days. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there were no alkalines then.
3: It was cylindrical and it fit on the front like this. It was yeah, it wasn't very hand holdable. Matter of fact, this thing even without the without a motor, just the back on it is heavy as hell. Okay. Yeah. There's no plastic in here at all. But uh so they had <laughs> ideas like that, you know what I mean? They were they, were, they, they had interchangeable finders of all kinds, high-focus high, high focus finder, you know, yeah. waist-level finders. They had everything. And uh, this one has the meter finder on it instead of an eye-level finder. It's an actual meter finder. Again, everything that Nikon eventually got into. So it was sort of like, well, you know, I think I think the Nikon engineers were, were looking at it when they were designing theirs. They wanted to see which direction to go. They had no one else to copy but the Xacta. Right. They didn't want to make an Xacta. No, okay. So they, they looked at this, and they said, well, this makes more sense. The only other thing you had out at that time, of course, was the contacts. Okay? But the contacts was a good design, very, very sleek design, very well made. But it wasn't modular. The Practina, oh, the Practina was one, one notch above right. this. This had you know, no interchangeable finders, no motors, no nothing like that. But it was the basic Pentaprism SLR. Right. And the shape, as you can see, is what we got used to for 50 years. Okay, yeah. sure into the past plastic jelly beans came out later on that we have now but uh i have cons i have contacts and all kinds of
0: those and i also have this <laughs> which one is this well that's a contacts of some kind it's a no name it's a no <laughs> name it's a no name yep that's the
2: one but if you peel off that plate there is no plate okay well you got the one that yeah, that they, they, then they, they sometimes they would put the plate over. Yeah, the Yeah, I had he, a right hexagon
3: there. that had that. I had hexagon that had. Yeah, but you could see it was, it. was a plate that was actually literally screwed on the front.
2: Yeah, I've I've seen it that were actually glued on.
3: Glued on too. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. one has
4: nothing. Nothing was ever there. I mean, this is a much later practica, but yeah. it's interesting. I'm looking at the where the where the actual shutter button is. Same on that place. One. Yeah. Well, it's exactly the same place, isn't it? Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah, the contacts started it. The contacts, the original contacts had this right here. The Practina took it up also. So both Practinas and contacts all had that. Actually, when you think about it, it's a more stable location. It is. As far I, as, you're not pushing fur. The they say it, it gives you more stability.
0: Even though you are still pressing down, the, the advantage of any kind of front shutter release like that. Is when you're holding the camera already to your eye, you know, generally like your nose might be touching it or something, yeah. but you're pushing inward pressure towards yeah. your face. So in a way, you're like like you said, Robert, it, you get better stabilization. You can get, yeah. I'm I'm just gonna make this up one extra stop of vibration reduction, you know, or it something be, like that. I mean
3: you can maybe handhold it for an extra, you know, an extra slower speed or whatever, but uh yeah. To me, it's a very comfortable location. And a few Japanese yeah. cameras did do it,
0: not
4: too many. I'll just jump in here for a second for the listeners because they obviously can't see what we're holding up here.
1: Until they go to Instagram.
4: Yeah, until they go to Instagram. But the shutter button is actually halfway down the right-hand side of the camera on the front, uh, angled at a 45-degree angle. So so you can actually – you're pulling back into it. Uh, yeah. Some A lot of the early East German cameras had had that, and uh, and that's what – we're referring to well i think what mike's saying is gives you an extra stop right. possibly because you're, you're actually holding the camera on its actual body rather than trying to get your finger up on the top plate to to yeah. to initiate the shut up
3: a couple of japanese i think i think petri might have done it on one of their very early slrs they had the same location and the same angle a couple other minor japanese companies did it too but none of the major guys did it
0: miranda and topcon had the front it was just in though, where you're you pushing right squeeze, in yeah yeah you could be right i have the very first petri and it's on top but the challenge with well yashica had had one like that they did it yeah yashica had the angled one but um when you look at most 35 millimeter slrs where the shutter release is put that's already kind of a cluttered part of the camera you you know you usually have the shutter speed dial up there you have the wind lever a lot of times the exposure counters there um in the case of cameras that were inspired by the leica you'd have the ar the advanced rewind lever would be there. And, you know, sometimes to have to fit in the shutter release, I've commented many times how I actually don't like the original Nikon F or even the Nikon range finders. The location of the shutter release is actually on the back edge of the top plate. And, and I won't say it's uncomfortable, but it's a little more comfortable the further forward it is. And to have, a shutter release where the Practina has it all the way in the front, for one, there's nothing else that's there. You're you're not fighting with other controls. I think it's easier to locate with it to your eye.
3: Nikon, when they came out with their original Nikon 1 rangefinder, they all had that towards the back mounted top release, shutter release. And it had something to do with, it lined up with the sprocket wheel and all this kind of stuff. It was easier to make. And they had that on the F also. So when you were holding the F, you had to have your finger like cocked backwards a little bit. They corrected that with the F2. F2, right. They found out that they didn't have to do it that way and they didn't. And everybody actually, that's one of the things that the reviewers were applauding that they changed the location of the shutter release.
0: And it sounds so pedantic and people yeah. who are listening to the show are probably like, holy shit, they're talking about like a two millimeter difference between the location of a, of a shutter release. But I'll I will tell you, pick up a Nikon F and pick up an F2. And it's not a huge difference, but it's just a little bit nicer where it's at. And then and then take an F2, No, the Nikon never did this, but then hold a Practina where it's all the way on the front. And just yeah. like close your eyes, wiggle your fingers, don't do any muscle memory, and then immediately grab the camera. And I would be willing to bet more times than not, your f- index finger is going to land On the front of the camera, not the top. It's very comfortable. It's very comfortable. And I think that's why so many companies continued to do that for many, many years. But for whatever reason, we'll never understand uh, by, I don't know, the 60s, maybe early 70s, everybody switched to a, a top plate shutter release.
4: I think it was because they wanted to try and get things closer to things like the shutter speed dials and yeah. so on, yeah. so your fingers always just in the one spot.
3: My, didn't the uh, didn't the Leica screw mount cameras also have their release towards the rear rear edge of the camera?
0: Yeah, hmm. same so as Nikon the, was basically. They were you know, like, Nikon
3: shutter so. is a Leica shutter, so they just copied that part too. Yeah. So the Leica, but then when Leica came out with the M's, they put it in a more logical spot.
0: Right. If you like screw mount rangefinders, the later Nikas, some of the taxes, they did the Canon did move it forward. Yeah,
1: Mike, let me ask you a, a point of just sort of conjecture that maybe you've sure. come across in your historical research. I'm looking at a list of camera industry in Dresden, and we've got Balda and Serto and Altessa and Ihagi, uh, which apparently is industry and in Handelgeschäft and KW. And all of these, and, and there's there's a dozen others oh, on
0: this list. There's several dozen.
1: One thing that strikes me is is that they all tended to have radically cool, different designs. And you know, there they, there were some like evolutionary dead ends there, but there also were camera companies that took chances on radical redesigning cameras. And I'm wondering if you know being in Dresden whether there was a, a, you know a design culture there or whether it was getting away from the uh, yes the theos holding up his his half frame penty, um which i also love but was it like getting away from the patent issues of of Leica and and Zeiss and Roly and and coming up with like different solutions because i know that that had driven a number of issues in the camera industry that you know like you couldn't copy uh, you know, the, 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 lawyers for, uh, for Leica were, were, were fairly aggressive about enforcing, uh, you know, copyright design, uh, were these just people like spitballing crazy ideas to get away from ex- established designs.
0: You got to remember size and lights were untouchable back then. I mean, they were the undisputed heavyweight. So even before the war, when it was just Germany, You know, Dresden was where so much manufacturing was being done. There were uh, a lot of universities there, too. So, like, if you wanted to become a precision mechanic, whether you wanted to make airplanes or cameras, you went to Dresden. Lights was in Wetzlar, which is what would become West Germany. And, you know, Zeiss was in that area, too. But Zeiss was all over the country. But I think what you said about the designs, they didn't want to compete. That's why That's why no other German company made a camera that looked like a Leica. Everybody else wanted to copy the Germans, but the Germans didn't want to copy themselves. So everybody was always trying to do something different. The Lordomat, I know this is an East German episode, but the Lordomat was made in Wetzlar, right next to Leica. In fact, several key employees at Lightolf, the company who made the Lordomat, were ex-Lights employees. So they wanted to make a camera that was very, very different. They didn't want at any risk of being considered a copy of the Leica. And I think that that's kind of why you saw so many ridiculously very varied designs. And and amazingly, even after the Soviet Union kind of crushed many, many of those companies and merged them all into VEB Pentagon, uh, you still saw that, Theo, hold it up again, the, the Penti, that little gold-plated camera um that was a welta design actually it eventually became part of Pentagon, but uh, that was originally a welta or velta camera when they in fact the early versions still say veb velta on it instead of pentagon so you still saw some of that cool stuff and i think that's why cameras like the praktiflex and the Practina were were you know nobody wanted to copy the exacta they wanted to make their own and they you know theos holding up something called the penti that's another East German design. Prakti. It was Prakti. Prakti sorry, the, there's the Penti Prakti. and the Prakti. The Prakti was the first uh, alkaline battery. Well, it would have been what was the technology before alkaline zinc something? Yeah, um
4: with the motor drive.
0: Yeah, but it was a motor drive. It was an electric motor drive camera sixty-one. So there was a ton of innovation. The Germans definitely had no problem making good-looking cameras. For as strange as the exact are, I think they're gorgeous. I really like. Exactas. Um, can, can
1: we talk about the glory that is Exacta right now? Yeah,
0: yeah. We spent a lot of time on KW, but I, I wanted to spend some time on the Practina. But uh, before we switch over to the Exactas, I'll just I'll leave it here. If you've if you want to try something cool that's old and has a great story, uh, but still also feels a little bit modern, I I can't recommend the Practina enough. The only issue, obviously, is age. It can be hard to find them in good working order, but they are out there and people can fix them. Um, I believe the shutter was a copy of the Exactus shutter. So uh, even if it's not a copy, I think anybody who can CLA and Exactus should be able to do a, a Practina. But yeah, so so what did you find? What does EHAGI stand for? Oh, hold on here. Let me bring up
1: my translation again.
0: Because it's literally an abbreviation for the letters IHG, it was an acronym. It was
1: Industry and Handel Gesellschaft.
0: So say that really, really fast in Germany, or German, I mean, and uh, it sounds really impressive. So people just shorten it to Ihegi. So in a way, Ihegi is a a contraction of the abbreviation for, for that actual name. But Ihegi has, in my mind, one of the coolest stories. I mean, Nikon, I think, has a really cool story, making cameras for the military. KW has a really cool story. You know, two Jewish men started it, sold it to an American, the American's you know, made the first modern 30 millimeter SLR. Then I didn't get into this, but after the war, they got sent to gulags. Uh, and then yeah. the sun came back after the Berlin wall fell and created the Noblex. Uh, okay. So there's, there's a really cool story with KW, but, but eHagi was created by a Dutchman, a Dutchman named Johan Steenbergen. Right. And one of my favorite parts of the story is that he, this guy was a shrewd businessman. He was a politician He was an ambassador. This guy was like Germany's lifeline to his home country. And he created Ihegi and split it up into two completely different halves. The first half was all the intellectual parts. So all the patents, all the designs, the names. And then the other half of the uh, company was all the capital. The factory, the physical buildings, the manufacturing equipment, all the raw materials, and he actually created them separately that way, <clears throat> fearing that if the German government were to ever try to take over his company, he they couldn't get all of it. They maybe might get half, but he'd still have half of the company, and that's one of the primary reasons why Exacta, or I, I keep saying Exacta, but it was really Ehaggy. But when you look at pre and post war exactas, there's almost no Soviet influence there. The cameras just continue to be made. Based, I mean, they they modernized, obviously. They they continue to evolve, but exactas were still hot sellers as 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 late as the late '60s, and and that was a design from the '30s. And a lot of that had to do with his understanding of business, and he was able to retain ownership of the, the, the intellectual property, you know, the Germans took over his factory, you know, it became a VEB, which is, it stands for um, Volks something, I don't know. Um, but it was, it was, you know, for East German companies run by the Soviet government, you would always see the letters VEB, that essentially means like a, kind of like a corporation or something, a state-owned corporation. And Exacta was operated completely independently from any other East German company because of that tie back to uh, the Netherlands. So, you know, the, the Soviet government controlled the East German camera industry and they didn't like people telling them what to do. But one thing they, they did realize that they needed was money. They needed to be able to export things and bring in money from other countries. That's why a lot of pentacons and practicas were sold out west they were sold they were very very popular in the uk we had a guest oh, yeah. on a couple episodes ago where i asked was was buying a practica in the 60s in the uk considered a bad thing and and i don't remember who it was we had that said that but they're like no it was just the camera that you started with so it was okay to buy east german stuff
4: they must have sold millions and millions oh, yeah. of them because mm-hmm. i mean you you look at any listing um, locally for for people selling cameras and and you know out of their garages and so on and there's always a practica. i mean it's yeah. usually is it the mt the mtl 3s and 5s and and so on they they're just absolutely everywhere they they must have sold quantities of that that would have made sure. you know, even companies like nikon and canon jealous well,
2: Yeah. Uh, wasn't hanamax hanamax
4: rebranded or, them yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah
2: hanamax rebranded them was mm. was hanamax Australian Yes, it was. Yeah. But it was, was, we had Hanamax in the US also. And that's, I think they were imported from Australia.
4: Yeah. Uh, They were. Hanamax
2: lenses as well as cameras.
4: Yeah, Hanamax actually did a lot of cameras. And they seem to have a lot of ties into the East German world uh, of cameras, because there's a lot of Hanamax branded and non-branded cameras that they were actually responsible for distributing, not just in Australia, but uh, across the US and, and the UK.
0: After the war, Steenbergen became and it, he actually moved to the United States, but became an ambassador to the Netherlands. He worked with Germany. They had a relationship that the East Germans just didn't want to risk losing. So it, there was sort of this like unwritten acknowledgement that Exacta would Ihege would continue to exist relatively. I'm sure they had some influence, but relatively independent of of the rest of the East German camera industry. So, you know, by like the late fifties, early sixties, almost everything had become Pentagon. You know, Certo was gone. Balda was gone. Welta was almost gone. Even KW at some point eventually got merged and became a, a VEB. But Ehegi survived way longer than any other e, uh, East German, Eastern German camera maker. And it had to do with Steenbergen's um, connections. You know, the fact that he actually still owned some of the intellectual trademarks that the, the East Germans wanted to respect because they feared that if they didn't, I mean, technically they could have chosen not to, but that would have come at the loss of diplomatic relationships with other countries. And um, the one thing that East Germany lacked that West Germany had was capital. Uh, they, they, they needed money um quite a bit so what little ability they had to export things and bring in money was highly dependent on on these relationships remaining intact
3: well you know the same thing happened in japan after the war uh the japanese government backed up the camera industry just like the germans backed up their camera industry because cameras are considered a high value export in other words the amount of material that goes to the camera is not worth anything compared to what you can sell it for okay so it was a great source of cash flow. And both the Japanese and the Germans needed cash flow after World War II. And cameras were perfect for that because Japan was not into other things yet, like TVs and whatever. But cameras they could make. And that was a very high, what they called a high-value export. And, the, the you know, MIDI backed them up. And I'm sure the same thing happened in, in East Germany. The East German government probably realized they had nothing else to sell. Who was going to buy anything else from East Germany at that time? But they had those names. They had those great names that they could they could sell product. And that's what they did. They got them a lot of cash flow.
4: We've got a couple of guests on, on yeah, today, we do. which we, we, we apart from Bob, um, who's always always quite welcome. We haven't introduced or asked any questions there. Uh, at the moment, uh, one of them's gone missing, actually. But there's uh Mark G.
5: Yeah, hi there. All right. Hi Mark. Maybe introduce yourself and tell us a bit about. So I'm just um avid hobbyist collector and um honestly with um I do listen to the podcast generally um in terms of GDR or East German cameras, that's um sort of a very big interest of mine. Um I do have a background in terms of you know going to school in part um when the wall was still intact in East Germany. I sort of cut my teeth in terms of photography when I was there with um Zeiss. Um Mainly um, bringing back some of the lenses, some of the cameras, what have you, getting started that way. And in terms of, um, I did work um, back in the day in the State Department. So, again, um, with trade and what have you, um, it's been a keen interest of mine to, you know, as a hobbyist with cameras, to look at the history behind that, not only in terms of the photography aspect, but, um, for example, um, the reparations after the war and how. Basically, um, as part of the reparations with the German, I guess, copyrights, patents, what have you, those carried over into Japan and were open up and um, they were allowed to use some of their designs, what have you, across the board without, um, you know, with the Japanese being able to have, um, as well as other nations, you know, having um, that information and being able to start their industry based upon the German Historically. So again, this is my first time venturing into the um Zoom call that you have here. And I just thought I would jump into it tonight as opposed to waiting for it to come online. So here I am. Thank you.
0: Well, the benefit is you get to uh pick a brand and ask us a question or share anything you might know. That's the best part of the show. No one wants to hear me talk for two straight hours.
5: Uh some of it I'm just curious about TLRs in, in particular. Um, and that's something I don't really have a lot of information
0: about. Yeah. Let me just ask out loud. I mean, is there anything interesting that you can share? Yeah, outside of Zeiss, there, like Pentagon Practica, KW had the pilot TLR, which we already discussed. But that was a, you know, a There you go. There was a Velta Flex. Well, there was oh, the reflector. Reflector. The reflector was, uh, was VE, There we VE go. Velta.
2: Yeah, the reflector was uh, mid fifties. Was well, it was replaced by the Delta Flex in the mid fifties. It was a reflector from roughly 1946 i think
0: but you know when you when it comes to german tlrs i mean roley would have been the the you know I, I mentioned earlier you had lights and you had zeiss which were untouchable and i probably to some smaller degree i'd be willing to bet that the roley was was fairly untouchable too you didn't see you know, there were many japanese copies of rolflexes but you didn't see quite as many German ones that, that operated similarly. So a lot of the ones that you're mentioning, the Weltaflex and the Perfecta, um, those were were fairly simpler models. I have a pre-war TLR here, which is very uncommon, called the Mentorat. This is a, this was made in the 30s, and it's it's very odd. It's got a it's got a pop up sports finder on the side. You know, I, this one's so strange. I don't remember how to open it. There we go. It's got a focal plane shutter. So you don't see that too often on a TLR. So it's um it's a cloth focal plane shutter instead of a leaf shutter like you would typically see on um, on most 6x6 TLRs. Lever wine. But this is, you know, like I said, this is a 30s camera. So there were a few East German, Eastern German and East Germany TLRs, just not quite as many. It didn't seem to be the dominant style of camera there than anything else but certainly you know they operated you know kind of the same way i i, I think that roley just did such a good job of being the german tlr maker that that's just kind of what people associated so people just chose to compete in other markets
1: makes sense so mark while you're in well i assume you were in were you in east
5: berlin yeah i was in actually i actually because i was a student i got to study outside of east berlin as well as east berlin itself
1: were you developing and printing at the time that you were in in East Berlin?
5: I was not. Ironically, though, my family background's printing. So because
1: I was I was in I was in East Berlin and in, in eighty nine ninety and found in one of the stores, a uh, linea. It was a photo paper that was uh, high quality German linen that had been impregnated with with emulsion that you could print on, and so it felt like a textured paper. Uh, when you went to expose it as a, as a as a as a print, until of course you put it into the first chemical, and then it became wet cloth. Um, but it was a fascinating product. I had only ever seen it in East in East Germany, and you could take it and you could sort of stretch it as it dried, and it, it looked like a canvas. It looked like you were printing photos on canvas, but you could also form it and drape it uh, while it was wet, and it would uh, sort of shrink to fit. Um, so you could get like these incredibly interesting textured photo prints out of this paper and it was something that again like i said i'd only ever seen in in east in east germany and i've been looking for that product you know ever since because i brought i brought back like 300 sheets and and actually did a show on prints printed on that photo linen and but i've never met another person who's ever seen it used it or ever heard about old stock of it (laughs) just something that uh, it may have just been one photo Store in in East Germany that or in East Berlin that, that 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 somehow had this product. But I've always been curious. You know, when 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 I whenever I find somebody who was in East Berlin about that same time, I always want to ask to see if they ever saw this uh, photo linen.
5: Yeah, honestly, at the time, I mean, I was I was in my early twenties, and I I just remember being in the stores, and just because of the you know black market for U.S. currency, I was able to get a few M forty two size lenses at a remarkable price. And um, oh, nice. And I'd been to the Soviet Union, or back in the day, and so I had a Zenit camera, and I just kind of matched everything with that.
1: Yeah, I also bought my first. I got eighteen there in East Berlin.
5: Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, all right.
1: It was a, it was a, it was a vibrant scene in East Germany. I mean, there was a lot of enthusiast camera. You know, it was, it was a big thing.
5: Yeah, the photography is remarkable at that time. Also, before you know they just promoted a lot of it was just um, in terms of what I saw for consumer goods through Eastern Europe and the Soviet union, they heavily promoted photography.
0: We talked about that with Vlad on the Soviet episode, you know, obviously East Germany was not the Soviet union. However, they did share similar ways of thinking and to what you're speaking about there is propaganda was huge there. So getting cameras or ways to, encourage people to make photos and, you know, that could be used to make the place look nice or, or whatever I think was big. And, you know, a lot of the cameras were, I don't want to say super affordable because, you know, a lot of people didn't have a lot of disposable income there, but they were, you know, the practicas and the Zenits uh, were within the means of someone who really wanted one. You could get one if you wanted to. And they, they, they shot, they made good images. You know, people will say that the Yena. Zeiss Tessars aren't of as good a quality as the ones made in West Germany, like Oberkochen. You know, we were talking about the Veras. There's, those, were, those were Jena lenses. There's the Altex. Um, the Altex the cameras had usually West East German lenses, and they make fantastic images. You know, the, the Tessar is such a, a well-designed formula that it's difficult to screw up, you know? So, you know, you get a, a Zeiss Tessar lens – no matter how simple of a camera it is. um, What do you have there, Theo? I've
4: got the Pentacon 6 TL, and, you know, that's got a um, biometer. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correct on it. Again, East German. Um, Carl's Ice, you know, but it's, uh, I mean, I would would argue with anybody that this doesn't produce absolutely fantastic pictures. I fully agree with you, Mike. I mean, the, the optics coming out of there were fantastic. Interesting enough, I just noticed that it's actually got the shutter button we talking yeah.
0: About it earlier. Yeah. yeah,
2: it's interesting.
1: interesting
0: yeah yeah back to what you were seeing there mark and anthony in east germany the the photography scene was pretty vibrant just like vlad was talking about in soviet union there were a lot of people who wanted to shoot photography they just they needed some of the the cheaper cameras but the cheaper cameras weren't bad you know i mean the japanese were definitely a leg up on your typical practica but it, it didn't instantly guarantee you'd take better shots right what do they say the best camera is the one you have with you so if you have an Agat 18 or a three element you know whatever slr uh and that's what you got you could make great images you just got to know how to use it but certainly bringing in money was a priority for east germany and uh and and i'll I'll say one more thing about yeah one of the neatest turns about uh, that history is that Steinbergen stayed away from Germany throughout the first maybe 10 or so years, maybe 12 years after the war. But by the late 50s, he wanted his company back. He owned some of the rights to it. Uh, the Germans, you know, the East German uh, pen, uh, Soviet government had control over his factories and the, and the name, but he thought, well, it's it's my company, damn it! I want it back. So he went in on this multi-year legal battle, trying to restore his him as the owner of Ihegi. and it ended up turning into something similar to what happened as Ice Icon, and there ended up, you know, there's a West german size icon and an east german size icon well the same thing happened with ehege there ended up being ehege west and ehege east and ehege west produced exactly two cameras um the first one is a camera called the exacta real it has the exacta name it even has the same script ehege logo i don't know if you can see that it says eHaggy yeah. berlin west so this was produced in west berlin so it is a technically a West German camera just produced in Berlin. It has a similar body shape, you know, that kind of trapezoidal shape that Exactas have. It has two shutter releases. One on this, it's, it's backwards on, on Zoom, but this is the left finger shutter release. And then there's one on the right and both of them will fire the shutter. It has its own lens mount. So they had a larger diameter lens mount, which was one of the weaknesses of the regular Exacta mount is that it was very narrow. So it couldn't support super fast or ultra wide angle lenses. Whereas this lens mount did, it has the shutter release on the right, just like you would see from the more modern cameras had a fast cloth, sh- um, cloth uh, shutter. So, you know, he ended up making a camera that he thought would be the natural evolution of the Xacta. Uh, unfortunately, it was harder to start up a new company in Germany for multiple reasons, the economic, the political. plus by the 60s, Japan was kicking Germany's ass in terms of mass production of, of excellent quality cameras. So um, the Germans were sort of, I don't want to say old school, but it, that's why you didn't see a whole lot of a whole lot of West German SLRs with focal plane shutters. You know, they, they they stuck with a lot of the old way of doing things, overly complicated stuff. You know, the lights lost money on every single Leica Flex they sold until they partnered up with Minolta in the 70s. So this camera, when it came out, was ridiculously expensive. It was complicated to build. I think it took like six years from when he started working on it to when it finally came out, and and even by '66 when it made its debut, even though it did have quite a few improvements over the original Exacta, it still lacked an automatic diaphragm. Uh, there was no meter available for it, no motor drive. So, um, although an improved camera and very pretty, I love the way these things look. Uh, this would have been the closest we'll ever see to a modern, uh, a modern Exacta. But you know any exact is good. You know I love the original ones. I have. They call these the vest pocket exactas. This is actually called an exacta knight. I, I read one time that because it's black. And I go Paul's got one. It, they were you were incorrect to assume that the exacta knights were black. Like I I could see why you might think that, but that's not true. They made exacta knights in both black and chrome bodies, and they made non exacta knights. In black and chrome too that what night meant was it came with there's your biotar you would get it with a faster this is an eight centimeter f2 biotar there were one or two other lenses that were made uh, for the exacted night and And although the mount is exactly the same the vest pocket exact is use a screw mount it does not have the exact bayonet mount it's still a screw mount Hmm. if you look see this thing that goes around I'm, I'm rotating it on the night it's much bigger and the reason it's bigger is because the physical size of the lens is bigger and they needed to make it bigger to clear the ring so you can actually mount non-night lenses to an and night body and vice versa but i think the scales are like upside down and you'll have trouble rotating the ring if you don't have the right combination of lenses so the the 127 Vest pocket exactas uses a screw mount. The 35 millimeter exactas use the exact amount. The exacta real uses an exacta real mount. I posted on the forum just the other day, I was even stumped. I had these lenses that I thought looked exactly like a, a larger version of the exact amount. It even had this indexing pin that they always have. And I think it was uh, Eric Cass Lewis. Who correctly was the first person who identified as this is the lens for the Exactus 66, the pre-war version. Then they made a post-war version, which you have, Paul. That has a different mount again. It doesn't use this mount. If you could go back in time, maybe and talk to Mr. Steinberg and say, hey, if there's one way to make your company better, stop making so many damn mounts because they're all different. I don't think there were ever two different series of, of Exactas that shared, shared a mount other than maybe like, you know, I guess if you consider the uh, the VXs. So
4: they were like the Mamiya of the yeah. Of the so. Yeah,
0: I think I counted um, once yeah. before, and Mamiya had like 14 different lens mounts.
3: Nikon made, of course, screw mount lenses of the Leica screw mount, and they also
0: made their mount. They also made lenses for
3: Bronica. We all know that. But does anybody did anybody really know that they also made a lens for Xacta? This is the 135 359 core that was made for the rangefinder cameras. They took that lens, they shortened the barrel because of the thicker body, and put an exact amount on it. This is the only lens they ever made for Xacta. Why they made it, nobody knows.
1: Would it have worked on a TopCon?
3: Yes, it's an exact amount, but it was made for Xacta. It's advertised. If you look at, at the magazines from like the mid 50s to late 50s here in the States, they're actually advertised exact amount.
1: Being a Japanese company, do you think they made that for the TopCon market?
3: I don't know. I've never seen a Topcon with one. I've never seen anybody even connected to it, really. <laughs> You're the first one to ever bring it up.
2: What were the numbers, Bob? Did you did you ever see a, a number, how many they made?
3: No, there's no way of knowing. Um, the thing is that the 135-35, of course, was made into hundreds of thousands, but it has a full-fledged exact amount on the back, it even came with an exact rear, mount, rear rear cap. It's the exact same lens as they made for the Rangefinder icons, except it's about... A half inch shorter because of the body length. So it's a manual lens. I mean, it's not an, even a preset. But the thing is, nobody knows why they made it. it was exactly that biggest seller in Japan? I don't
0: know. Well, the Exacta was actually extremely popular in Japan. In fact, the Japanese companies were one of the first third-party manufacturers to produce lenses and exact amount. And some of them were for cameras like this. This is called the first Flex 35. Yes. I don't offhand remember who made this camera, but it uses, I'll get it off in a second here, it uses the exact amount. So this <laughs> is a Japanese SLR. It's a one-speed shutter. The shutter speed is controlled by this little lever. You have either 125 or bulb, and that's it. Only two speeds.
5: When did that come out?
0: Uh, I think this is late 50s, I guess. I honestly yeah. don't know.
4: 1955. 55, wow. okay. Tokiwa Psyche.
0: Tokyo Seki. There's there's an early version of the first flex, and then a second version. This is the second. I know this is okay. a later one, so maybe the early version was 55. But nevertheless, this is an early exact amount Japanese camera. So I could take this lens and I could mount it to what Paul's or Phil's holding up there, the Topcon, which obviously uses the exact amount. You could mount this to any Exacta. You know, uh, Robert, you mentioned nippon kungaku made a lens in exact amount but so did canon canon made one ironically yes they did, yes, they did. not for an actual exact who who did they make it for uh, trying to remember i remember seeing it it was Mamiya. they made it for mamiya, mamiya okay. for um there was a couple different cameras that they made that used the 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 exact amount or
3: something maybe the prismat or something like the, that
0: right it was it was one of the prismats uh there was a tower version a serious tower yeah. version that had it too and what I had read in Peter, Peter Decker is well known for his rangefinder book, but he actually did make an SLR book. It was far less common. He mentioned in there that at that, at one time, Mamiya and Canon had the exact same distributor. So Canon, I think, produced that lens as a favor to their distributor, just so they'd have one more lens that they could sell with it. So the exact amount, you know, a lot of people we've talked even on this show, why did Tokyo Kagaku release the top con with the exact amount. In my opinion, that was one of one of the reasons the camera just never really caught on. Bad decision. Bad decision. But it it it, in hindsight, yes, I agree with you. But at the at the time it probably seemed like a smart decision though, because you know what was when did the first Top Con R come out? 56? Maybe 57. so that's still, you know, two, three years before anybody, you know, most other Japanese companies are producing these SLRs. Anybody who wants to spend that kind of money in a Japanese SLR doesn't want to invest in a whole new lens mount. So knowing that the exact amount was already well-established and there were millions of people both in Japan and elsewhere shooting them, um, they took an approach saying, well, all right, we're gonna create our own SLR, but we're gonna make it compatible with these German lenses that are optically good. You know, They believe Japanese lenses were good too, but remember, you still have to market it. And even by the mid 50s, there were still people in certain areas of the world that just simply didn't trust Japanese manufacturers. So if you wanted to buy a Topcon, but you already had an Exacta, you might be more willing to give it a shot than if it had its own its own lens mount. I mean, you know, I, I think the bigger problem with Topcon is that they were slow to innovate. Well, they did make really good cameras and the RE Super, I think best did the Nikon F because the way the meter worked, it would work. You could read the meter even with the waist level finder, whereas the Nikon F, you couldn't do that. So in that regard, you know, the, the RE, and I still think the RE has one of the smoothest film transports of any camera I've ever used. So I guess if we go back to East Germany, um, I mean, there's so many brands. Here's a weird one. Get out your orange juice and champagne, everybody, because I have a mimosa. (laughs) Um, This camera is misleadingly small. It's, It's still a 35 millimeter camera, but it's very thick front to back. And how they were able to make it so small is you open up the film compartment and it has a hinged... It has a hinged pressure plate, but the film spools kind of wrap around the sides. So instead of the film going in a straight line from spool to spool, it kind of wraps around at like not quite a 90 degree angle, but kind of, you know, maybe like a 60 degree angle. So the camera is thicker front to back, but it's narrower side to side because the spools are kind of tucked in more towards the front, but it resembles a box camera. In fact, the first time i had ever seen one of these things online i just assumed it was a box camera and then when i learned it was 35 millimeter i'm like well, that looks like the dimensions just don't match right in my head so you know that's that's kind of a strange a fascinating camera isn't it fascinating camera and there's a mimosa one and a mimosa two this is the two the only difference as far as i'm aware. Is the Mimosa two has a through-the-body viewfinder that physically goes through it, whereas the Mimosa one has a viewfinder that sticks up on top. But otherwise, they're about the same. Oh, I forgot. Um, one other kind of neat Exacta trivia. It's not really an Exacta, but this is a camera I found in Kurt's collection. So there was the Exactas, which were very, very popular. But then they also in 1950 came out with a camera called the Exa. So the EXA was essentially a scaled down version of the exact. It's physically smaller. It doesn't have a traditional shutter. It uses what's called a trap shutter, where essentially there's a plate that's attached to the reflex mirror. And as you fire it, the shutter, or sorry, the mirror goes up and it exposes the film. And then when it's done, it goes back down again, ending the exposure. So it, it essentially the mirror becomes the shutter, but it it's limited to a top speed of only one one fiftieth. So when you look at an Exa, you'll see a twenty five, a fifty, a one hundred, and a one fifty. And I don't think any of them went faster than that. But uh, it does share the interchangeable pentaprisms, and it does have the exact same lens mount. So this would have been kind of like a step up camera, uh in in Nikon world, like a Nikkor X sort of, or or NICR-MAT even. This specific EXA, though, is different from most of them, and it says System EXA, and below that it says Rheinmetall Somerda. And this camera, at one point, was so popular that the factory where Ihegi was making these couldn't keep up. So they basically outsourced manufacturing of these cameras to a completely different uh, factory that essentially made... A copy of them. So this is not made by Hegi at all. This is made by a completely different company, but it's essentially a copy of the Xacta using the same mount, same body castings, um, same lenses. Everything about it's the same. But if you're an Xacta or Exa collector, this System Exa is a, is a very uncommon, and I don't think they made a lot of these, even though it was meant to help. Add additional capacity to the factories who were overloaded. They ended up not producing these for very long.
1: I do. I I do love the stick shift uh speed adjustment. Yeah. I wish that more. I wish more cameras had
0: that. It's literally just a lever that goes forward and backwards, and that's it. Because it's it's essentially just slowing down the speed at which the mirror goes up and down. If I, it won't show on the zoom, but if you actually watch the shutter fire, you actually see this plate that's under the mirror that just goes up and down.
4: The thing with the exacto is. One thing we sort of do have to say is the Xacta and the XR, they are not just cameras. They're actually works of art. The yeah. detail that's gone into designing the way they they actually look, not just operate, is just outstanding. I mean, you, you won't find any manufacturer do that kind of work, you know, effectively a consumer good these days. You
1: know, the, the, the Varex gets a lot of uh, um, people griping about the weird ergonomics on it, the fact that it shoots from the left-hand side, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that the wind level lever on it goes like 180 degrees but and in in the in the front firing shutter release but i love shooting my varics Uh, you know the biotar on it it's fantastic i've got a you know i've got a, a range of lenses for it from a number of different manufacturers and uh i'm lucky to have one that's in perfect working order and it just looks you know you're right it looks like a museum piece they mm, you know, it's, it, it, it's it's wonderful to handle although that is that the tessar that's on yours theo uh
4: that is the tessar yes the five centimeter 3.5 you,
1: you, you need to get a properly sized lens on the front of that camera you need to get a buy <laughs> yeah, on I, there
4: because
1: that that throws the lines off
0: take that um, lens theo do you have a topcon
4: i do I got Topcon with pretty much every lens the Topcon made. Put
0: that lens on the Topcon and it looks <laughs> hilariously out of place.
1: <laughs> the, the you know the, the 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 weird sort of triangular shape to the sides of the camera. Yeah. You know there's just so much about that camera that uh you know the the, the engineering details maybe it's over engineered I don't know. But uh um the feeling of that camera it's you know it's it's of a it's of a class of its own.
0: It's something that <clears throat> I don't know how many people use it a ton. But the slow speed governor would allow you to shoot 12 second exposures without a cable release. Like you can shoot anywhere from 12 seconds up to one one thousandth. And I mean, it took, you know, even in the 70s and 80s, in the beginning of the electronic era of SLRs, you usually didn't see. An SLR that could shoot an exposure longer than four, maybe eight seconds. So you know you're talking about a camera from the 30s that had the ability to shoot 12 second exposures on its own without without having to use a cable release. And the sound, I don't know if you've ever actually fired it using the 12 second, hearing it, and then eventually it goes as it's like winding down. It just the auditory groans that it makes are are very appealing. But I, I agree with you, Anthony. They are gorgeous. They're very collectible. There's so many different kinds. Even the mm-hmm. later, when they did redesign them in the 60s with the block letter, uh, you know, and the zebra lenses, I, I think they're still gorgeous. Ergonomically, you know, they they can be a little tough. I mean, they're heavy. If you're not used to using your left finger to fire the shutter, the early ones, the film advance was a very long throw.
1: It's like it's like 180 degrees.
0: Oh, it's longer than that. the The earlier ones go. I mean, I yeah. have one right here. It goes. I mean, I'd say like almost 270 degrees.
4: Yeah, it, it goes all the way around.
0: It goes. They they actually did change that. That's one of the improvements they did on the block letter ones. The, the later ones, Anthony, are closer to 180. Yeah. Yeah. Even now they go past that still, but it's not quite as far. Do
4: Do we even talk about the
0: razor blade though? The razor blade. Yep. Yeah. That
4: that's the one thing with the exactors that always I have a bit of a chuckle with is they actually had a razor blade in the actual camera.
0: What would you use that for?
4: I believe it was to actually cut
1: film. Right. So you, so you could change rolls uh, halfway through shooting.
4: Yeah. Hmm.
0: So a lot of, a lot of cameras back then did cassette to cassette film transport, but you still needed to finish the roll or make a note of where you left off, rewind it then take it out, swap it, put it back in and then go back to where you left off, but with the exact does, you could be halfway through your roll, you just pull this lever up and it's got a little hook. It's like a tiny little sickle with a razor blade tooth, like a tiny velociraptor finger. Yeah. And it would just slice through the film and then all you would do is just rewind it just a tiny bit to get the the end back in the cassette and then you could pull the cassette the the exposed cassette out, develop that, and then the unexposed cassette, you could then reuse again later if you wanted to. Uh, the KMZ start had a a, a blade like that too.
1: And you can't mention the Exactor without giving a nod to Rear Window in the Hitchcock film where uh Jimmy Stewart's using a, a blacked out version. Or they, I don't, contraction. I'm not sure why they taped over the exacta markings on it, but uh, was that it? Was that a Kilfit lens? It was uh, a kill
0: fit, yeah. Was, I think it was a four hundred millimeter. Yeah, Uh, like an F56, I think that lens is uh, worth a pretty penny for that exact reason. People want that lens from that movie. It was a it was an uncommon lens to begin with. But because of its use in that movie, you can get the 300 which looks similar. It's not as big. If you want to flash it around to people who don't know the movie that well, you could probably mistake the 300 for the 400. But if you want the one he actually used in the apartment taking pictures across the courtyard, you need to get the 400. Which is creepy, by the way. It is.
4: (laughs) Please, please don't do that. We we don't endorse that behavior.
0: (laughs) Peeping Tom. Okay, so here's a question for you is, how do you spell Xacta?
1: E-X-A-K-T-A.
0: Which is true, but you'll sometimes see people spell it with a C instead of a K. But that's not wrong. They actually sold it both ways. So you can find some exactas. They have one right here. For a short while, they did make them with a C. So while the K is still the more accurate way, and people who use a C probably don't know this. So it's not like they're like, oh, well, it was both ways. You can't actually say that's wrong, though, because they did sell them both ways. You'll Another thing which I find fun is people on eBay who don't actually know anything about these cameras, they always say the name of the company is J-Haggy because the German script, the traditional way of writing a capital I had a little hook on it exactly like a J. But uh, it's not J-Haggy, it's... It truly is E-Haggy. So you have the J-Haggy Xacta with a C. You could say that both C and K are correct, although they're pronounced the same.
5: Let me ask you a question here with Xacta. Um, sure. I coll- I, I'm i focused. I collect a bit of uh, Topcon. I guess in order to sort of finalize um, the cameras that I do have, um, I looked at the Topcon RE300, which I believe that that was their last camera that was. was released.
0: Yep. The end. Uh,
5: so I found on eBay um, an Exacta, which was, um, I, I'm not exactly sure, but th- it's essentially the same camera with different plates on it, but um, Japanese-made camera, mind you. But um, what exactly happened to Xacta? I'm just curious because of that. I know th- the one that I do have is Japanese-made, and it had a variable 35 to... Is it this one? No. No, okay. it is not. Yeah, I just strictly bought it. Just as se- I, I was mainly interested in the RE300, and it was virtually the same camera.
0: I believe you. I'm sure there was a Japanese-made Exacta that was a, probably based off of the Topcon, which probably wasn't made in, in Germany anyway. Or I'm sorry, was probably made by somebody else anyway. I just yeah. I don't know a lot about it. But the reason I ask if it's this one, I mentioned earlier about the Ihegi Real, the Ihegi West Exacta Real. I said they made two cameras. The Exacta Real was the first one, and this was the second one. The problem is, is by the time they tried to make this camera called the Exacta Twin TL, um, it still has the Ihegi logo. But this this is actually a Japanese camera. It's made in Japan by I think Shannon. I think maybe so. It was, maybe it was Cosina. It was one of those companies. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. But this is a japanese camera japanese lens still has the exact name it uses the same mount so this has the bayonet mount so i could swap this lens with the lens from the one i just showed you earlier but then they also made a version of this camera with the m42 mount too by that point they 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 had jumped the shark the company had given (laughs) up it was clear it was never going to go anywhere but to answer your question I don't know much about that other than I, I know that the, the RE 300 is by mo by most accounts, isn't is no longer a true top con anymore. Oh no, by no means is it? Yeah. For, if you want like uh Ira Cohen loves to do alpha Omega cameras where like the first and the last, like that would be the last. That's why I bought it as well. as It had kind
5: of a neat lens of 35 to 100 yeah. millimeter, which I've never seen before. So mm-hmm.
0: the price was right. Here's another Xacta with the metered prism. It has what do we call these uh, neck straps, Paul. These are the hair rippers. Oh yeah. You put this thing on your neck, and you move it a couple times, and it shaves the back of your head like a baby's butt. You know, completely rips out all the hair. Because these things are, are vicious. I don't know how anybody ever used these things. So we're we're running short on time here. Um, this episode kind of meandered all over the place. There's there's a lot of really great stories about the East German camera industry. If you don't dive too deep into the, the East German cameras. It could be easy to mistake a lot of them as lesser, less expensive, less quality build quality, less quality lenses than than many of the other West German or even Japanese makes. But I, I like, there's a lot to like about this market. Um, I already shared with you that Practica. I like the VL series. These are nice cameras, they're attractive. This one has a removable prism. Um, I don't have one handy but they had a Pentagon exact called the 1000 RTL, which is a good looking camera too. They have great images, whether you're talking about ones that use the exact amount or M42 mount, there's a lot of good options there. A lot of the less common ones really didn't get much into the Sirtos and Baldas. Uh, Pre-war Sirtas and Baldas were like on the level of like a Kodak retina. In fact, there were a couple Weltas that if you kind of look at them at a glance, they look like a retina. They're very easy to be mistaken for one. You can get them with a lot of different kinds of um, you know, Schneider, Ze- Zeiss lenses, a lot of the same lenses and such like that. Anything else that I missed, guys, that we wanted to cover?
4: I, I think we covered the, I mean, we did mention the, the actual uh, Prakti earlier, but I think we just have to play what a good East German early motor wine sounds like. So I'm just going to put that up. Yeah, the go microphone. for it. Yeah,
0: so so he's going to use the Penty with the motor drive. Go, go for it. The practy. The I keep saying it wrong. We got the Adirond from last episode. <laughs> it's the
2: Joy <laughs> Buzzer. It's the Joy Buzzer camera.
0: So anyway, a couple bit of housekeeping. In, in the last, actually two episodes ago, when we had Jesse on, we talked about trying to connect the older generation with the newer generation. And he was saying a lot of younger people don't go on Facebook. And that's pretty much where a lot of our listeners come from. So it was suggested that we consider doing like a discord server. Um, so we actually did create a discord server. It was right around the recording of the other show. So we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but uh, we do have a discord server. We've set it up. I like it. I I've seen some of the benefits of it. You have, you know, your stream of conscious, you know, we have the lounge where anybody could just drop in and say hi, do whatever they want. But we have a couple forums where people can share their gas, post pictures of cameras they've had. Uh, people can comment on it. We have a section where you could share your photography that you've shot with some of your old cameras. Um, we have a section called Ask the Hosts. We actually did get a question from somebody who wanted to know if there's any good German books about the German camera industry. And I did actually look to see if I could find anything. And, and I don't know of one. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of stuff specific to Leica. There's a lot of stuff specific to Zeiss and brand specific stuff. But um, I was unable to find uh, a book that's literally the history of the German camera industry. I would suspect that anything remotely useful would be ridiculously long. Um, But that was a good question, though. So if you have any questions that you want to bring up here, Um, that's a good place to ask. Obviously, we're still very active on the Facebook page, but check out our Discord server. It's not discoverable at this point, so we have to have at least 1,000 members before they'll allow us to be discoverable. But we have the join link in the Facebook page. I'll include it in the show notes of this show too, but it's just another way to interact with us. And if it allows us to expand on um, the, the number of people that we can engage with and get some more listeners, then I'm all for it. I do have a plan for the next show. We're gonna record in two weeks, which is gonna be on November 27th at our usual time. Um, I, I can't say who it is because I don't wanna jinx it, but I think the next episode is gonna be really awesome. I'm really, really looking forward to speaking to this guest. He's a, a big time camera collector that has, that knows a lot about collecting cameras and, and just all the different models makes. I think you guys will be impressed with the with the stories. So um, more to come on that episode. But uh, any, anything else you guys want to say before we go? We're all good. We're all good. Well, as always, the topics and discussions on the Camerosity podcast are influenced by you guys. So please continue to offer suggestions. But what's more useful is for you to come on the show and actually talk to us. Uh, I certainly love to talk, but I, I'd rather listen to you guys. Um, I really do enjoy after we edit these shows, listening to the episodes and hearing some of the engagements and questions that people ask some of the best diversions we've ever had have come from people who've joined the show and, and we didn't plan on. So uh, I look forward to talking to you guys again. Uh, thank you, Mark, for coming on the show. Phil, thanks coming for coming back. Uh, Bob already said he had to go, so uh, didn't have a lot of people join this time. But we're looking forward to uh, you guys returning and having more guests to talk to. So have a good night, everybody. Good, good night. Time. See you, fellas. Good, good, good night. night. Good
4: night, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye.
2: Hey, Paul. Hey, Theo. My circuit breaker popped. Oh, jeez. My computer just when the sump pump in the basement kicked on, which
0: is not not a good sign. <laughs> no, it's not. It should be isolated from the rest of your house.
4: I don't think Anthony's going to be too. His exact message, fucking Bluetooth keyboard died,
0: trying to find another USB one that works. <laughs> there we go. There's Anthony. Apparently, he got a new keyboard. Got it working. We thought maybe you had just taken a nap.
1: i I did fall asleep you yeah we wouldn't blame you if you did
2: my circuit breaker just popped again i gotta go see what's going on here i'll be i'll be back
4: man i've gotta find a job (laughs) contracting wise what a shitty time of year
0: i think i swallowed an ant